Good morning. Hey, my name is Mark Holmes. I'm the youth pastor here at the church, and I get to share with you guys this morning. So I am very excited. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I've been a dad myself now for uh, almost four years, and it's one of the most joyful and difficult things uh, that I do, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, one of the things that I do each week uh, as I teach the, the high schoolers and the junior hires uh, is I share a story about my kids each week. Um, something funny or strange that they did that, that sort of brings some excitement or joy or strangeness uh, into our everyday life. Uh, and I tell that I work with teenagers uh, primarily, and I tell them stories about my kids because as teenagers, they're at an age right now where they are um, as least likely to like their parents as any time in their life, and there is often times of conflict. And so I like to share those stories of, of me and my daughters, Peyton and Bailey, to just remind them that there was some night where they cried the entire night through, and their mom and dad stayed up with them and loved them through that. There was some night where they threw up at 3 a.m. all over everything, and their parents changed the sheets and changed the clothes and did all of that stuff. And so I like to share these stories, particularly with them, uh, just to remind them how much their parents love them and all their parents have done for them in the past. So even though as their teenage years, they may not always uh, have that warm, fuzzy feeling towards mom and dad, that, that the truth of, of what their parents have done to get them to this point uh, is something that, that I like to remind them about. So keeping sort of with the, the Father's Day uh, tradition, it, it makes sense for me to share a story uh, with you guys about something that my daughter uh, Peyton did uh, this week. She's almost four years old. She's three and three quarters. She'll tell you if you ask her, that quarter means a lot to her. Um, this week, my daughter Peyton asked if she could have a meltdown. <laughs> I don't make this up. I was in the, the kitchen one evening, the girls were sitting down at the table finishing up dinner, uh, and as I was doing something I don't remember, I overheard my daughter Peyton ask my wife Diana, Mommy, can I have a meltdown? <laughs> and they had just recently flown home from Virginia, I knew that she was tired and, and worn out, and you just have that feeling of... Did she really just ask if she could have a meltdown? Like part of me as a parent was proud that she was so polite about it. And then the other half of me was the, the reality of what that meant the rest of the night was going to hold if that's where she was at, like ready to, to have a meltdown. Uh, and so, so I sort of turn around and look at him to get, you know, a handle on the situation. And what I see is my wife Diana had been feeding our daughter Bailey something that we call yogurt melts. And so up on Bailey's tray were these yogurt melts, and Peyton wanted to try one, but she couldn't reach them. So she asked Diana, may I have a meltdown? <laughs> so it's those little moments as a dad, you, you grab onto those, you enjoy those, you la laugh at those, you love those, because it's not as funny when they throw up at 3 a.m. So enjoy the, enjoy the meltdown moments. Uh, fathers, I don't have to tell you this, you know, uh, our children are a blessing. Enjoy the time uh, that you have with them and realize that the level of responsibility that our, our Lord and Savior calls us to is very high. I wanted to share Ephesians 6, 4 with you this morning. I'm sure most of you have heard it and are familiar with it. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, we are to love our children like Jesus loves us, sacrificially. And we're to teach them what it means to be like Jesus, and this is done through modeling Christ-like behaviors in our own lives. I read a book that claimed uh, that most children's faith will not outgrow that of their parents. That you as a parent set the standard for what your children will grow into spiritually. 
my question for you fathers is, are you setting the bar high enough? Have you taken steps in your faith with the Lord? Or will your faith be something that holds back your children's faith? I feel very strange quoting Spider-Man from the pulpit, but with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) My prayers for the fathers uh, here today and, and future fathers in this room that you would use your position of power and authority for the benefit of your children as you teach them about their Savior. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to address you as that. It is such a blessing that you are our Father and that we have the ability to become your sons and your daughters. Thank you for drawing us into your family. Thank you for Jesus that made it all possible. Thank you for the love that you have for us that is the ultimate example of what it is to be a father. Not everyone here in this room has a father uh, to celebrate, a father uh, worth celebrating. But God, we all have the opportunity to have a heavenly father that is perfect, that is love. God, thank you for the way that you care for us, that you provide for us, the things that you do that we don't even realize or, or give you credit. You love us in ways we can't even understand fully. Thank you for being our dad. Help us as we look at your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Have you ever been to a place where everything's sort of the same and then all of a sudden you sort of stumble into a new place and it's just totally different and it kind of catches you off guard? Everything around is, is like, like everything else and all of a sudden you're in this new spot and it's like, wow, how did I get here? Anyone who's been to the city of Manly, Alaska? Those of you that are giggling know where this is going. Um, it's about a, like a four-hour drive uh, from here. It's small-town Alaska. Um, it's, it's like every, if you haven't been there, you've been to every other small town in Alaska. They're, they're sort of all the same. The price of gas should be illegal. Uh, the food and snacks are, are priced at prices that just laugh at you and say, we dare you to find somewhere else to shop. Uh, it's that small town feel and you've probably been somewhere like it. And Manly is, is like every other small town Alaska until you go to the hot springs uh, it's this long greenhouse up on the, the side of, of this hill as you come into town. It doesn't look like anything special. It kind of looks like a long greenhouse. And you walk inside of it, and you are transported from small-town Alaska to a tropical rainforest in an instant. Uh, it's, it's lush. It's green. There's flowers growing that you've never seen before in Alaska. You, you go and you sit in the hot tubs and you, you literally have to resist the temptation to reach up and pluck a grape from the vine that's growing above you. And the whole time you're just sitting there going, what is this doing here? How did we get from that to this? This doesn't fit in. This is what's out of place. Manly's the norm. The hot springs is not. And that's kind of similar to how I felt as as I approached this passage this morning in in Exodus 15, the first time that I read it. We as a church have been journeying through the book of Exodus. We've been introduced to Moses and to Pharaoh and to the Israelites. Uh, We worked our way through the plagues and the Passover. We saw the departure of the Israelites when Egypt finally had enough. And then we saw Egypt change its mind and, and come chasing after them. And then last week we sort of looked at the, the, the dramatic event of the crossing of the Red Sea. The story of Exodus up to this point has been very action-oriented. And then we find ourselves in Exodus 15 where we'll be today, and they're singing. 
It's been action, 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 and now it's a song. It's been go, 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 and now all of a sudden there's a break in the action and they just start singing. It feels like we've been watching the movie Braveheart and somebody switched it to the sound of music without telling us. So how do we find ourselves here? What's, what's the point of this chapter? It, it's not like the, the book of Exodus details every single event that, that occurs to them. Uh, if anything, we complain about the book of Exodus that it doesn't give us as much information as we would hope. We, we'd like to know more. It's played out over 40 chapters, but what's left in the story is very precise. So why chapter 15? Doesn't, doesn't this song just sort of interrupt things and draw our attention away from God's story? Shouldn't we just hurry along and see what God and his power is going to do next? As we progress through the Exodus, it can be easy to get caught up in the what of the Exodus and forget about the why of the Exodus. Uh, remember, God has already given us the reason for the Exodus. In Exodus 7 verse 16, he says, let my people go. So that they may worship me in the wilderness. Worship isn't an accidental byproduct of the Exodus. Worship is the reason for the Exodus. Exodus 15 isn't the conclusion of a journey, it's the learning step in the process of a nation as it learns to worship its God. Exodus 15 is sort of a, a bridge chapter that closes the first half of the book and begins the second half. From this point forward, Egypt, who had been their adversary, is now only seen through their rearview mirror. It kind of feels like an intermission in the book of Exodus. The story has been pretty intense, and it's kind of like the author is like, okay, catch your breath, stretch your legs, maybe go use the restroom if you need to, and then sit back down because there's a lot left in the story, and it's good. So we're going to look at Exodus 15, verse 1 through 21 uh, this morning, and I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go through and break down some different things that we can learn from it. Exodus 15, picking up in verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified, and the leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone 
until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountains of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The first thing that we learned this morning is that worship is about God. We're told it right away in verse 1. Moses and the Israelites sang this song, To the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. This is a song to the Lord. This isn't a song about Israel's bravery or success. This isn't a song about Egypt's pride or defeat. This isn't a song about Moses' brave leadership and shrewd planning. The crossing of the Red Sea isn't about Israel. Israel did not accomplish the victory. This is the Lord's victory, and the song is for him. Now, the event of the Red Sea is the event that triggers the song. But the real source of the song is the power of the creator of the universe who demonstrates it by coming to the aid of his covenant people, Israel. And this is something that that, that we can need to be reminded about sometime. The song isn't about Israel. It's about God. The Exodus isn't about Israel. It's about God. Worship isn't about us. It's about God. Church isn't about us. It's about God. And we may not all come out directly and say it as Terrell Owens famously did. I love me some me. But there are a few of us who could argue with this statement. And if our focus has been in on ourselves for the past six days, it's no wonder sometimes that it's difficult to worship. Worship orients our focus away from ourselves and back onto God. Now, it's true uh, that worship of God is accomplished in more ways than than just singing. Uh, But for sort of today's discussion, we're going to use the narrow definition of worship as it relates to the singing of of God's people, as we see it demonstrated in today's passage in Exodus 15. So in this song, To God, About God, we see three different ways that we're informed about God through worship. Worship tells us, first of all, who God is. Picking up in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Skip into 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And then in 18, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Worship is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves about the character and nature of our God. And and different worship songs may focus on on a different aspect. Some things that we see, uh, particularly in this worship song about the nature and and character of God. In verse 2, we see that God doesn't provide them with strength. God is their strength. I know personally this is something that that I can forget in my own prayers. Uh, I prefer to pray the Philippians 4.13 prayer. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Um, God, give me the power to handle the, the problem that's in front of me. Give me the ability to accomplish this difficult task. God, help me to do it. But instead, we're reminded sometimes it's like verse two. 
The Lord is my strength and my salvation. God, you do it. You're God and I'm not. And and you are amazing and able to do all things. Now, I'm not advocating a passive Christianity uh, where a bunch of Christians just sit around not doing anything because we're just waiting for God to do it all. But I am advocating that we remember that that God doesn't need us to do the amazing things that he does. God chooses to use us for his glory and not our own. We see in verse 3, God is described as a warrior. And it paints a little bit different picture than, than the Jesus walking around playing with baby lambs that we can often see. God is a warrior. If there was a conflict, you wanted to be on God's side. He wasn't fooling around. There were no mulligans when it came to conflict with God. And Egypt learned that the hard way. Verse 11, we're asked the question, who among the gods is like you, Lord? And the rhetorical answer is that there's nobody like our God. Nobody has the power to do what God has demonstrated so far in Exodus. God has never lost a battle and the Egyptian army was not going to be his first defeat. Who is like our God? The answer is nobody. Sometimes, isn't it nice to be reminded about how big and powerful our God is? Because if we just had little problems, maybe we could get away with just a little God. But we have big problems. Look at our lives. Look at this world. We have big problems. And we need a big God. I have problems that, that I don't know how to solve on my own. I have problems that overwhelm me as I just think about them, let alone begin to do anything to fix them. Now, the Christian response isn't to to bury our heads in the sand like an ostrich and hope that trouble blows through. But one of the comforts that we're reminded about when we worship is that we have a big God. Who loves us and who can do what he needs to do. We learned last week and, and just a refresher from what Eric taught. God is in control of everything. Eric reminded us he's in control of our life's journey. He's in control of all of history. He's in control of the big picture and the little picture, the day-to-day. He's in control of our circumstances. He's in control of our enemies. Worship is an opportunity to remind ourselves of who God is. And that knowledge can sustain us through some very difficult trials and circumstances. Worship also tells us what God has done. We see this picking up in verse 4, and I won't read it all again, but we see a very poetic description of God's destruction of the Egyptians. Moses doesn't shy away from the brutality and the totality of their destruction. This movie is rated PG-13 for scenes of violence. Look at the descriptions that Moses uses here. Hurled into the sea, drowned in the Red Sea, sank to the depths like a stone, shattered the enemy, threw down those who opposed you, unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them. My heart, my hand will destroy them. They sank like lead. All of these uh, pictures reinforce the idea that the crossing of the Red Sea is not a well-timed natural phenomenon. It was the hand of God intervening on behalf of his people. I I particularly enjoyed the description about God's breath in verse 8. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. They knew that God did it. They just didn't quite know how. 
uh, and so they creatively attribute it to his nostrils. Uh, perhaps they thought if God would have used his whole mouth, they all would have been blown off the face of the planet, so God just gave a, a gentle nostril breath instead. And people sometimes say Christians are strange. I sometimes have to agree. But I also think it speaks to the creativity of the writers of Scripture. That you and I could have a legitimate conversation that begins with, what's your favorite verse about God's nostrils? Because this isn't the only one. If you want to use a a good word this week to sound uh, really smart, uh, find an excuse to use the word anthropomorphism. It's when we attribute human characteristics to God. Uh, So in this case, Moses giving God nostrils to breathe. You can see the value of a song like this as it details what God has done on behalf of the nation of Israel. You can imagine the, the people in Israel as it wanders through the desert for 40 years singing this song again and again. Passing along the history of God to the future and next generation of Israel. Teaching the generation that will enter the promised land that about who God is and what he has done. And they'll need that courage. They'll need that security. They'll need that reminder as, as they look back at the Red Sea and, and what happened. The ability to recall through song what God has done for them will, will be their courage and their confidence as they need God continually to come through again and again and again, as we'll see. The Exodus and, and the Red Sea uh, becomes the symbol of redemption for a, a young nation. It was the shining example of what God had done for them up until this point. Now, as, as New Testament Christians ourselves, the significance of the Exodus can be lost a little bit on us. We've, we've replaced it with the significance of Jesus' death on the cross, our ultimate rescue, where, where God rescues us. Not a rescue from physical slavery and bondage like we saw in Israel, but a rescue from spiritual slavery and bondage. And we as Christians love to sing about what God has done for us on our behalf. Worship also tells us what God will do. In verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. Skipping to 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. Now, as we read this, there's sort of an interpretive question that we need to ask. Is, is this section, uh, 13 through 7, is this written looking forward prophetically or is this written looking back historically? You can make an argument for it being seen prophetically. Moses was a prophet and God spoke through Moses concerning future events. Uh, as Moses leads the nation of Israel through this song of worship, it would not have been anything abnormal for him to have included inspiration from God about future events, things that hadn't happened yet. You could also make the argument uh, historically that, that Exodus isn't written like a journal entry. Moses didn't go to bed every night and break out his camel skin notebook and jot down what happened that day. It, it's quite possible uh, that verses 1 through 12 were sort of the original song uh, that they sang, and verses 13 through 17 were sort of, through 17 were sort of a secondary verse that got added sort of in a later point uh, in their history. Exodus is, is a God-inspired memoir of, of looking back, um, 
And it, it would have made sense possibly for Moses as he was writing Exodus and he includes the song that they worshiped there and the next verse is there to include it there as well, even though it may have happened uh, or been added at, at a later time in their history. Now, we could go into a five-minute discussion about Hebrew verbs and their tenses and which, uh, which this is, but it's 80 degrees out hot and about 50 of you are fanning yourself, so I love you enough that we'll move on. My conclusion is both answers could work if you look at the way that the sentences are structured. And when that's the case, I tend to take the Bible for what it says in the most straightforward way. And the Bible in this section treats it prophetically, and so I accept it as that. God has demonstrated himself as a God who will continue working into the future. We can worship with an anticipatory attitude as we look forward to what God will do in our lives. Much the way that, that Ish, Israel worshipped looking forward to God's future provision of the promised land. We look forward to what God has promised us as those who have put their trust in Jesus as their Savior will, will be with him someday. We also see that worship is contagious. Verse 20, Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. We're introduced uh, to Miriam here and told that she's Aaron's sister. Uh, It's quite likely that she was the older sister of Moses who kept an eye on him while he was in a basket in the Nile that we looked at very early uh, in Exodus. But we're not told that specifically. She's not, the the sister is not named in that first account. Uh, And so we would be making an assumption to say that we knew for sure, but, but it's certainly a probability. Seems a little strange as, as we read this and know that Moses, as the author, uh, writes it and calls her Aaron's sister. I wonder if they're fighting a little bit. Uh, <laughs> culturally, sort of the proper and humble way of introducing uh, someone, was a, a female, was to link her to the oldest living male relative. So it was sort of the proper, formal, humble uh, way to do it. And Moses, being Aaron's younger brother of three years, uh, was following uh, that humble custom. And of course, we know that Moses was a humble guy. He tells us in the book of Numbers, so we know that he is. <laughs> Miriam grabs her timbrel or tambourine uh, and dances and sings and leads the women of Israel to follow her example. There are other Old Testament passages uh, that talk uh, about women as they sang and danced and at a celebration uh, as Israel returned from a victory. Um, it wasn't something that only women did. There's also passages where, where men sang and danced as a, 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 as a victory, uh, and then also mixed groups. So, so it's not just something that was exclusive to women at this time. And there's sort of two, two ways that we can look at, at this little song uh, of Miriam. Uh, the first is that Miriam's sort of leading them in a, in a very short little chant. Um, you can picture Miriam in the role uh, of an appropriately dressed cheerleader leading them through this song that's just easily repeated and, and just sort of reminds them about the truth of what God has done without going into the full length of the song. The other thought is that she led them through the entire song uh, and we're sort of just being told the title here. Uh, it'd be like if, if somebody were to lead a song and said, I, I taught the children, the kids, Jesus loves the little children. Well, you're both saying the lyrics of the song and you're also saying the title of the song at the same time. So it, it could be confusing. So it's a possibility that this is just the title of the song and is indicating that she taught them all of it. 
Uh, again, both answers uh, can work in the context, and I, I tend to lead towards the first, that it was something repetitive that they kind of used to, to, to drive the point home. Moses was the author of, of this historic song, but Miriam helped popularize it and familiarize it among the women, that it would be sung in every home and every family. We know that music has an amazing ability to teach, and we know that kids have an amazing ability to learn through music. Kids are sponges, for better or for worse. Music has an ability to get inside of our brain and not leave. And depending on what song it is, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. You get a song about God stuck in your head, that's a good day. You get the Macarena stuck in your head, that's a bad day. But one thing we see, the worship of our God is contagious. Let me close with sort of some miscellaneous uh, thoughts uh, about worship as I kind of dwelt on it uh, this week in my study. Worship covers the full spectrum of emotion. Uh, Worship is as appropriate as we stand before the cross mourning our Savior's death on Good Friday as it is as we run from the tomb shouting, He is risen on Sunday. We, we tend to have this natural association of, of worship and good times. But I'd throw it out there for you. I would venture a guess that perhaps some of your most dynamic personal worship moments with God have been during some of your most difficult times. God is the God of joy, just as he is the God of lament and sorrow. And in the midst of both, both happiness and sadness, victory and defeat, we find ourselves reaching out to the nearness of God. Worship is not dependent on our circumstances. It covers all emotion. Worship is not just emotion. Now, emotion plays a role, but it is not the only element of worship. Maybe some of you are are similar to me, and the emotional part of worship can be difficult. I'm not the most emotional guy. Uh, somebody once sort of asked me jokingly if I'd ever had an emotion in my life. And I jokingly responded, yeah, I've had two. The day I married my wife and the day Duke won the national championship. Yeah, I've had two. Good days. Since the birth of my kids, I've had to amend my answer a little bit. If worship was solely driven by emotion, if if you're like me, you might be in a lot of trouble because that's a difficult aspect. But we are told that Worship is something that we do in spirit and in truth. Worship is much more than singing songs about God until we have warm fuzzies in our heart. Dallas Willard said, We must not worship without study, for ignorant worship is of limited value and can be very dangerous. It's one of the things uh, that I truly appreciate about Pastor Keith and, and the team that he leads up here as they worship us. The songs that they choose are grounded biblically in what we've looked at today and who God is, what God has done, and what God will do in the future. Now, there is an emotional aspect of worship. We don't just worship in truth alone. And some of us are still working on that part. There's something unique Something unifying about the corporate worship of the church. I can, I can turn on K-Love or Air One in my car and, and listen to that and sing along. And that's worship. That's a good thing. But what we do together as the body of Christ is something different. It's, it's something special. 
We were created as God's children to worship him together. Maybe some of you that are out there today, you're new to church and you find yourself asking the question, why do we sing so much here? A couple of reasons. We worship because it teaches us and it instructs us as God's people. It reminds us of who God is, what he's done and what he will do. And we worship because it draws us together as the people of God. There's a contagious element. There's something fun about singing together. Where else do you go that you sing with other people? We worship because we haven't quite mastered it yet. Dallas Willard shared, he said, In worship we strive for adequate expression of God's greatness. But only for a moment, if ever, do we achieve what seems like adequacy. We will never hit a point in our life where we've worshipped enough. We will never hit a point in life where we've got it mastered. We're, we're finally perfect at it. The worship we do now is, is simply a warm-up in anticipation of what heaven will be like with our Lord. Good worship is like a good workout. You give it everything that you have. You pour out all that you are. And you finish and your body says, good job. When are we doing that again? That's what worship is. We pour out before our God all that we have. And God fills us up with his presence and with his spirit. Let us exercise together our our spiritual muscles this morning. Let's have a good worship workout together as we close. Let me pray. God, I... I look forward to singing to you in heaven. My mind is blown by trying to put together a picture of what it will be like when your people have been redeemed and we stand before you as our Savior. And we will worship and it will be perfect. God, we're not there yet. We don't have worship mastered. God, I look forward to practicing. God, help us as we engage you in spirit and in truth. Help us as we lay our hearts and our minds before you as our God. Help us as we remember who you are and what you've done and what you'll do. God, thank you for the worship team as they lead us, the role that they play uh, in helping us worship together as your body. We thank you for this opportunity to worship. Help us do it with all our heart and all our mind. Amen.